What is up, everybody? It's Ineptus Astartes back here with episode 16 of the podcast. Today we're going to be covering some listener questions. We're going to be talking about some long-due reviews and also giving you a little bit of an update on projects that I've been working on. Really, the thing that I want to focus on most today, though, is, I mean, this is, we're going to push this, get it out right before the new year, and I'm wondering how you're thinking about the new year, what you're looking forward to next year, what you think you're going to try to get done for yourself, and what your goals are going to be. Hazel's goal is to let, for me to get her to let her out in the middle of the night again to bark at these deer that are in the backyard, so we're going to pause for a quick second and let her do that. Well, sort of a mixed bag for our friend Hazel. There were no deer in the backyard, but she did bark at a bucket in the neighbor's yard across the fence, so um, we'll call it a half win. Regardless, uh, we're back here, and uh, yeah, we're going to talk about some of those goals and whatever else is coming next. Another exciting announcement um, that I'd like to share out here is that after the new year, I will be launching a Patreon for Ineptus Astartes. Currently, I am planning on doing just two tiers. The first is a $1 tier, which it just allows you to support the channel $1 a month to keep enjoying Ineptus Astartes content, and thank you very much for that. Uh, the next up is probably a $5 tier, and looking at some sort of perks to add for people there, up to and including the ability to send in and have a uh, special list developed per your tastes once per month. Get some specific feedback from me on how I would put it together, why I would design it, allow you to have very specific feedback on how that works as well. Something to look forward to next year as we look at expanding, trying to find ways to raise revenue so that we can get some of that new material, get stuff that uh, we can review on the channel and uh, continue to expand our brand and do fun things for you to listen to. So anyway, like I said, hope you will consider supporting at that time and look forward to it after the new year. But no matter what, we can move on here and we can start talking about, um, well, questions. And actually, I'm cheating here and I'm going to skip anything else and I'm just going to ask a question of myself because I really want to know what you think about this topic. It is the end of the year. This is the hokey time for self-reflection, for making goals. Sometimes those things are positive. I made a goal this last year to paint uh, more models than I brought in or make sure that I had, how do I want to put this? Make sure that I didn't end up with more unpainted models at the end of the year than I had at the beginning of the year. So if I bought more, it's fine. If I painted them, you know, you get the idea. And I was doing really, really well for the most part until, well, until something happened here in the end of December. So uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But, you know, it's not just a time for us to reflect on our own selves. You know, it's also a good time to think about the state of things in our world and our hobby. And I'm just curious as to how you think the game is going and what you're looking forward to in heresy next year you think 2024 has to bring for us and what you're excited about also of course it's an opportunity to uh, air some grievances i suppose and there's definitely missteps and then misplays and things that we don't like so much so without further ado i'm just going to give you my top three favorite and least favorite things from the horus heresy this last year no, I'm not going to get fancy and rank these things, so I'm just going to give you a basic list in no particular order. Here are my favorite things that happened last year as far as Horus Heresy went. First of all, I really did enjoy the battle box that came out. I thought it was great to see that it came out, the Mark III, with the Land Raider and the new plastic Derrideo that had been teased and promised, whatever else. 
I thought that was fantastic. Great to see new armor coming out. It was great to see it offering at least in somewhat bundled price. These are good things for the hobby going forward. Um, these are good things to see, you know, perpetuate. It would really be good to have them go on in the future. And hopefully that's a plan for GW. I also had a great time at the conventions that I was able to go to. I loved going to Adepticon in March, and I'm looking forward to it again in just like, oh my gosh, it's like 85 days or something like that. Um, it's not that long to go for now. Um, so if you're not panicking already about your plans, then you should be. I know I am. But on top of that, of course, I've mentioned it millions of times, our little local mini convention that we do in October was the Siege of Terra. It's just 14 people, but it was a, an absolute blast, and I look forward to that as well. So, you know, I, I get a convention roughly every six months, which is really fantastic. It keeps me focused on the hobby. It's an exciting time to get away and do that. So, again, those were fantastic. My favorite thing, though, I, I would probably have to say that my favorite thing that happened the last year was the Siege of Chthonia book. I thought that was absolutely fantastic, and it was exactly what I wanted to see coming out for the hobby. Now, I reviewed this I, I several part videos, but it didn't get that many views, so I will link the playlist here, but it's on YouTube, and I really, really enjoyed all of the things that were going on with that book. I thought having inducti rules so that every legion could have something going on was fantastic. I thought that the extra flavor we got for like the mini codex, I suppose, for um, the specific legions, the Imperial Fists and Sons of Horus, uh, extra character for each. If that was to continue going forward, that would be a fantastic model to follow. We got additional rules for what the, the tank commanders. It was great stuff. ZM rules. I mean, it was packed. That was a fantastic book. Anyone who plays had a good reason to want to pick that up. You would have you would have picked it up. Um, you would have gotten some pretty cool lore, and you would have gotten you know something that you could apply and use. That's exactly what we need for books going forward. Honestly, this sort of leads us then into our other examples. The something that was my least favorite. Um, I did not really care for the exemplary battles release, which I talked about on YouTube. I explained why I was not planning on covering it in the same way as Siege of Chthonia. Um, I thought it was kind of a hack job of a book, reprinting things that we had in PDF already for the most part, and then just filling up space so that we could get a little bit of extra rules for Emperor's Children. Now, this is going to be the episode at the end where we finally take a look, specific um, Ineptus Artist look, at Demon Fulgrim and talk about him and his options. So I won't you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not putting the cart before the horse here, so to speak. But yeah, I wasn't a big fan of that book. And I, I chose not to purchase it for the channel or myself. And I'm happy with that choice. Um, it is the opposite of what we need as far as a book. I've got lots of grievances still about the way the books work now, especially since GW is not allowing them to be, you can't sell them to the uh, your local game stores. So can't buy these books at your local game stores, at least those the supplementary books, which is really too bad because it's one of the few things that regularly comes out that I know I need to get. And so, you know, it's a great way for me to give some support to that local community. But this one was so bad, I didn't even need to G give GW money for it. So that's great. Um, the next thing that I didn't care for was Legions Imperialis. Now, I have, I've bought into Legions Imperialis, and I am very excited to play for it. 
but it was a real bummer that it was delayed for like four months from August until the start of December. A real bummer that it also occupied basically, you know, what, 50% or more of the heresy articles that came out in that time period. So which is getting one tease of one new box that is going to come out eventually for Legions Imperialis. It got old, it got sad, and it got a bit dark and depressing. Now, I have not gotten a chance to play it. Um, I got the rules just before I was getting ready and prepared to go to another thing that I was supposed to do with some friends in early December. And then we're right into the holiday season with kids and then the end of the semester for work. So I've started building and painting my my Solar Auxilla, which he's coming for later, but have not gotten a chance to get a game in yet, have not really even had a chance to look through the rules specifically for myself, which is just too bad. That's just the nature of the holidays, I suppose. If it had been, you know, a month earlier, then I might have gotten in some time to be able to really say something and feel definitive one way or another about it. I'm still very excited about the possibilities for the game. I'm just a little bit disappointed with, you know, how hard it was delayed. Also, as I'm taking a look at points and costs, realizing that this game might actually be, um, in some ways, even more expensive than Heresy uh, in some configurations uh, because of just how few points you get in these little boxes for dollars. So we'll, we'll just have to see. But regardless, like I said, I shouldn't talk about it now because I really don't know exactly what I'm talking about yet, but I was not a fan of the way that was handled. Lastly, and this is sort of a mixed bag for me, I wasn't probably going to buy them anyway, but the Assault Marines coming out, it, I was really, I didn't mind the models, and I actually liked, I liked them enough that if I had a reason to buy them, I would pick them up. I was a little bit sad that they only came in 10 in a box, and they're going to be $70 for those 10, which is a little, when you're used to getting 20 Marines for 80 bucks, 70 for 10 feels a little bad. I have to say, though, of course, you know, you're getting a lot more plastic in those jump packs, you're, I'm sure, and I've looked, at, I've seen the sprues, and there's still quite a lot of stuff on there, so it's not like you're getting skimped on there, and they're still cheaper than it would have been to buy them resin a while ago, so it is still a better deal uh, in that regard. I believe that if you're playing 40k right now and you're buying the uh, new jump pack Primaris, you're probably going to pay $60 for five because that's the way that 40k works and always has worked. So it's really, I mean, it's ultimately, I don't actually think it's that bad, but it did set some people back as far as thinking about how they were planning their forces. Also, and this isn't necessarily any one person specifically's fault, I was really kind of put down by the by the negativity about the release for these. A lot of people were really, really, ex I thought excessively angry about the price on these. And I do think it's bad. Like, I, admittedly, but, like, I I was just sort of, like, it just gave me the ick to see how uh, how angry we got about these this one release. It's funny because since the new edition came out, this is one of the things that was asked for. And so a year and a half later, <laughs> we, get, we get it, and it's just not quite uh, good enough for us. And so we're just really miserable about it. And I love to grump as much as anybody. I, I do wish they were a little bit cheaper. Or you could get 20 in a box. Because I think anybody, almost anybody who's going to use them is going to probably want to have 20 to play with. Um, more than 10, definitely. 
So it's kind of a disappointment, and I get it, but I'm not quite as mad about it as everyone else seems to be. Now, there's one more thing in the middle there, which is uh, the FAQ. And, I mean, we have been wanting this for a long time. Um, so it's, it's, again, it's one of those things where I feel like the FAQ did a pretty good job of answering a lot of questions. I was not available much around the time of coming out to really plan and record something on my own. I did hop on for a little while to a uh, podcast with some friends and uh, the accountability buddies and talk to them about some of my uh, um, ideas. And I'll go ahead and link that here as well. But the biggest thing for me was that it just, it was that because, because we've waited so long for this, that more and more and more and more and more questions continue to pop up as people notice more and more things that just need a little bit of greasing, you know? And the FAQ answered a lot of things, but it didn't answer everything. And so now if you were one of those people who had something that you submitted that didn't get thrown in, um, what are you thinking? Are you thinking you're going to have to wait another year and a half maybe to find out uh, what to do about that? That's, that's kind of a feel bad. Honestly, I think if there's one area where I would be objectively harsh with Games Workshop for how they've handled things, it's that FAQs have not been coming frequently enough. There hasn't been enough discussion about those things. Now, I'm going to temper my expectations here a little bit because Horus Heresy is not a competitive game, so it does not need, and I don't want it to have the kind of rules updates that we see for like 40k in 10th edition or whatever else. Um, but, but for real, there are some things that just as written don't necessarily work or seem to be contradictory or, you know, things and moments in like, for example, the Demons PDF, which just looks like two different versions of the rules made it into the final copy. And uh, you have things that sort of directly contradict one another in phrasing. And so you just kind of have to guess which one the authors probably wanted to do. So there's definitely always going to be things to be fixed. And uh, it's unfortunate that we don't really have probably a great expectation about when we could see when we should see another one. One thing about 40k is that they have regularly scheduled times for these things. So you know when something is going to come up. And if you miss it one round, you can, you know, be that squeaky wheel. And then another three months or whatever it is, you can hopefully get that update. But for us in the heresy land, Admittedly, this is narrative gaming, but still, like there are some things that are stretched uh, to incredulity when we have to just rely on it being a narrative game and hope that things work the way they will just because, well, hopefully when you sit down at the table, you and your opponent have the same idea about how the spirit of those rules is supposed to work. How did I do in your mind? What else did you have that you wanted to complain about? I know that I saw a lot of Mechanicum players talking about the FAQ that said that there wasn't enough in it to really help or spe specify things. I noticed that Myrmidons did not get addressed in the FAQ, and if you are unfamiliar, um, the Myrmidon build, the Myrmidax, um, gosh, Techno Cohort, I'm, that's not the term for it, I can't remember off the top of my head, uh, is definitely one that is a very strong build for Mechanicum, and some of the others seem kind of weak, so I think a lot of them were hoping that there would be some addressing there, change there, incentivizing you not just to take Myrmidons. Nothing happened like that. So, you know, um, there's definitely opportunities in other places. But I think what we need to do is to take this as an opportunity to then continue to push 
and ask questions and put in information to continue to ask for further updates to the FAQ, you know? Um, we got one. What about second FAQ? You know, we have a chance to tell Games Workshop that this is what we want. We really want this to happen regularly, and we can be a community that politely expects it, politely and loudly expects this kind of support going forward. So, so how did we do? Um, what did you think we needed? What was missed? What were your big misses? Uh, let me know. Make sure you comment and let me know, and I'd love to uh, to talk about it in later episodes. All right, the next question is um, actually a real question, and it comes from a listener who um, has inquiries into one of my favorite parts of the game, which is list building. This listener says that I'm a Night Lords player. I played a lot at the early phases of Horus Heresy and kind of took a step away from the game, and now I'm coming back to second edition. I'm trying to figure out how to build my armies and how to make things work. I've got about 6k points. I've got terror squads, night raptors, tanks, dreads, and big blobs that could be tacticals or despoilers. I get frustrated when trying to fit in all into an, a 3k list. How should you decide what makes the cut and what goes away? All right, so this is a this is actually a huge question and um honestly probably is the a better subject for an entire um, other series of videos or uh, podcast episodes. But I'm going to give a, a short answer on this real quick. So one word that we don't like to say so much in the heresy community is competitive um, because of the implications that come along with it. But when you are creating a list, you do want to think, uh, you, want to have, you want to have the goal of creating a competitive list. Now, competitive can mean different things. And for discussion's sake here, what we're going to say, competitive is a benchmark. That means that you're bringing a list that won't be too easy for your opponent to destroy, and then, but is somehow balanced between the it will not uh, destroy your opponent so much that there's no fun. So you want a list that is tough enough to stand the rigor of the board game, make the game entertaining without um, limiting fun on one side or another. Okay, so you do need to think about list building then and deciding what goes in there, and then balancing out several different factors. In this edition, um, essentially, in my opinion, you need to balance a couple of things. One is you need to balance scoring, which means line units. You need to decide how many line units, roughly, you think you are going to need for the list that you are designing. Now, that number is a bit of a moving target. Some types of armies, some armies that are going to be a little bit more um, killy, um, or like maybe you're going to get right in, directly assassinate your opponent, have the ability to move effectively across the board, they might need less line choices because you're going to be killing your opponent's line choices at the same time and so um, removing that discrepancy one way or another. If your army is more of a sit and uh, hold, then you might want to have lots of line choices and, uh, and options because you might want to be able to sit on those objectives for quite a long time, force your opponent to whittle you down while you're whittling them down as well. If it's attrition warfare, you need to have lots of scoring. Um, the other thing, too, I guess, is that if you're a shooting army or whatever, then you need to make sure you've got enough objectives or you've got enough of, uh, line units to scoot around the board and get to those objectives that aren't necessarily right outside your deployment zone while still having enough meat because one of the things in this edition is that line units also tends to be the units that have uh, the bodies that are going to provide safety for you. So you need to do a little bit of both. You know, the line units can't always just be used for scoring. Sometimes they have to be used for screening. 
Now, the other thing, too, is then you need to think about making things killy. Um, in this edition, that means a couple different things. Now, I want to come back to something that I mentioned at the start of this, which is when you're trying to build a competitive list, you're trying to approach and attack the list that you're likely to see and the things that you're going to need to attack. So, theoretically, that means a balance between anti-infantry, heavy infantry, uh, light vehicle, and then uh, heavy vehicle, or like, you know, heavy tank, light tank, that sort of thing, however you want to think about it. Dreadnoughts are in there as well. Dreadnoughts are weird because the weapons that are really good at killing tanks are oftentimes pretty decent at killing them, but really a high volley of AP, low AP shots, or high AP shots, depending on how you look at it, AP2 or so shots, it's a good way to get rid of dreadnoughts. Um, Las cannons are great, but there are other options as well, and lots of legions have different ways to sort of do different things. One of the things that I strongly recommend, I guess, if I'm really going to boil it down, is figure out, well, who are you going to be playing against? And I'm not necessarily talking about the forces, the armies that you're going to be playing against, although that might come into it as you become more comfortable um, a little bit later on. Who are your friends that you're going to be playing with? If you have a group that already exists, um, then they can talk to you about what they typically take, and you can sort of get an idea read the room on how strong, how competitive your local meta is, because some people just like playing tougher games than others do. I can enjoy both myself, but I like to know before I get there which one it's going to be, because that's when missed um, expectations or silliness can happen. For you, since you're playing Night Lords, I think you also then need to consider what the character is of your army. So one of the things that's sort of interesting is that, just as an anecdote, traders in this edition have not as easy a time of accessing line as maybe the loyalists do. Night Lords specifically, they've got a really cool right of war in Terror Assault that makes certain things troops, the Terror Squads and the Night Raptors, which is similar from last edition. But they don't score anymore. They don't have those uh, that line. And so you need to still try to find scoring to put into your list. Now, you can just make a choice to make a very character-driven choice like I sort of have as I've mapped out the Night Lords project that I've always dreamed of doing but I've never ever followed through with. Then maybe just playing a Night Lords list with very little or almost no scoring is sort of appropriate because the Night Lords are so callous and selfish. Maybe they're just too you know, too villainous to be expected to just stay back, ignore the glory, ignore the trophies, and just hold an objective, hold a node. But, you know, there's lots of different ways to look at it. What I'm going to go do, though, is share with you one of the list drafts that I've been working on and talk to you about why I've chosen those things, some of the ideas that I have behind it, and then, you know, we can just have a discussion about that. I'm not going to spend the time going through it because, quite honestly, sharing a list that I've not had a chance to playtest or really work with myself just seems sort of like a silly thing to do on an episode of the show. So I guess in 2025, when I finally get around to the Night Lords, um, you know, I will let you all know then how it's going. And one of the reasons why I say 2025, jokingly a little bit, um, this actually segues nicely into our next topic, which is even a callback from last episode. So if you recall last episode... I made a comment to a listener who was asking if I was going to cover any of the non-Space Marine armies. Specifically, they were talking about the Imperium book, 
but you know it's uh, you know it's worth answering in the larger sense. Um, I have covered demons now pretty decently extensively. I've definitely covered militia, um, but I've not given much time into other things. I made an offer of covering custodes, and literally not one listener bit on that, so I just put it away and moved on to something else. But there are some factions that I'd be more interested in talking about. I do play a little bit of Mechanicum, so I would be interested in doing that. But one thing that I haven't talked about, and up until now I promised I wouldn't, was Solar Ox. So as a refresher from last time, um, I said that I was not going to play Solar Ox because... uh, Or I was not going to cover Solar Ox. Well, now I'm here. So uh, because I knew I would end up playing them. The models are beautiful. I had looked at them up close for a couple different reasons, a couple different times, and I just love them. I love the story, um, the underdog nature of non-augmented humans just going up against the superhuman, literally like the superhuman's war, um, and how hopelessly outmatched they are. That sounded awesome to me. It's a cool narrative thing and concept. I did really like that. But I wasn't going to cover them on the, the, the uh, show, or on YouTube, because if I did so, then the same thing would happen to me that it happened with Iron Hands. I was going to end up uh, buying into Solar Rocks. I will say, I have successfully still not bought into Solar Rocks. However, some friends from the Accountability Buddy podcast and their network and just buddies, um, whose names I didn't get permission to share on this podcast recording before I went on to record, so I'm not going to, but... They thought it would be absolutely hilarious to just give me a good chunk of a Solar Ox army. So, um, at the table right now where I am recording, I am looking at 100 assembled riflemen, and I've got a bunch of artillery carries, carriers in the wash. So, I guess you know what I'm going to be bringing to Adepticon in 85 days. Oh my gosh. I've got a lot of work to do. So anyway, um, I will be keeping using this space a little bit at least just to document that process and keep you posted. Thankfully, I will have something to talk about because I'm not going to have a lot of time to come up with new content ideas because I'm going to be spending most of my waking hours building and painting um, individual grommets on the armor of Solar Ox uh, infantrymen. I have decided to go with the Ultramar pattern of the uh, Solar Ox cohorts which is the one that uh, basically your LAS riflemen, your standard troops, if they stand in base-to-base with each other, they get a plus one to hit. They can't take dedicated transports, and so you just take a lot of those. So like I said, I've got 100 now. Hopefully I don't need more than that. Um, But it's, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot of dudes. I am very excited to put this together, and I'm hoping to have more interesting announcements about them In the coming weeks, uh, we'll see, but I will let you know. Also, this is a good time to note that I made an Instagram page uh, because it's the, you know, it's the, it's 2023, almost 2024. It was time to join the, uh, the new age. I'm not sure how much I'm going to be posting on there, but I will use it to update on this project specifically. Maybe I'll get fancy and I'll join that new threads as well. And you can just see me doing random musings at like 2 a.m. when I'm not grading papers like I should be. Um, But anyway, um, I will post all that stuff here as well. Man, the show notes for this episode are going to be stupid long. Whatever. But anyway, thank you again for those who shared. Um, And this is a good reminder as well to like 
um, this video if you're seeing it on YouTube. Um, follow the podcast or subscribe to the channel. Support the channel in that way if you could. Come back and see my mad dash effort to get everything finished in time for Adepticon. Follow on new news um, as we continue to press on into the new year. Huzzah! Okay, so we're going to move into it then. I mentioned it before, and I'm it's I'm going to repeat it. I just said it, but I'm going to repeat it again. I was super disappointed by the Exemplary Battles book. I thought it was a a missed a major missed opportunity. Siege of Chthonia built I, I thought built a lot of credibility with our community. It was a good book. It had something for everybody. I don't know if I know anybody who didn't like that book, but don't trust anyone if they didn't. Uh, it, no, it just it just had it just had everything we needed. Exemplary Battles was the opposite of that. It just it was not something for everyone. It was essentially, you know, if you wanted the Demon Fulgrim rules, you needed to buy it. It has the ways that you can play him as far as Rights of War, which are very limiting, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but, you know, it just, it's kind of unfortunate. It's kind of unfortunate. I'm not covering any of the rest of the stuff because it is definitely a waste of space and material and a waste of our time. But we do need to talk about Demon Fulgrim, what he heralds, haha. Um, and what it might mean for the future of this demon Primarch conversion thing going forward. So first off, there is a big question that is asked and answered. Demon Primarchs do have their own rule called Demon Primarch, which makes them something a little bit special and a little bit different. So Demon Primarchs are still Primarchs, and specifically they have one rule that says that for effects and rules that would consider them as such, they are both demons and Primarchs. However, there are some other changes to some of the base rules that come with the package. If you're familiar, Primarchs get a whole bunch of rules all bundled together, including Character, Eternal Warrior, Fearless, It Will Not Die 5+, Bulky 4, and then Relentless. Demon Primarchs have variations upon that. They do have Character, Eternal Warrior, they gain Fear 2, It Will Not Die 5+, they are automatically Bulky 6, so this is interesting. I just think it's interesting that... We're seeing this laid out like this because I, I just feel like this means we're going to be getting rules for Daemon uh, Martarian and Daemon Angron probably at some point soon. They also still get Relentless. In addition, both of these still cannot be affected by special rules that negatively affect their characteristics other than wounds. And uh, they always resolve snapshots at normal ballistic skill, which won't matter a ton here. But anyway, the biggest change so far is the fact that Demon Primarchs are not fearless. If they fail a morale test, they instead suffer D3 automatic wounds with no saves of any kind, but it is like a Perils of the Warp test in which those wounds have to be allocated either to a Daemon Primarch or a Daemon unit or a unit with a corrupted subtype. Both Daemon Primarchs and regular Primarchs can allocate their shooting attacks or their close attacks anywhere they want presumably outside of a challenge, because that's something that was specified in the most recent FAQ. And Daemon Primarchs must also still be the Warlord. So not a lot of great changes there. The biggest one is that fearless to this, um, more like a demon-appropriate fear. Now, one interesting question I would have here, based upon the wording of this rule, um, results from the demon unit type and how it affects, how it affects the way demons work. So... Demons have a plus one to their strength and toughness in the first two turns of the game. On three and four, they have their standard stats as listed. And then on five and six and later, 
um, they have negatives, negative one to start. And I believe if you ever go to a turn seven, I believe it's negative two. So technically, this would say that they are demons for that purpose. However, they also have a special rule that says their, mod their statistics cannot be negatively modified. So I don't really understand necessarily how this works. Does this mean that they get a plus one in the first two turns, but then no negatives later on? That would be pretty gross if true. I'll have to talk to some people about that because I'm not sure. All right, Fulgrim Transfigured, though. He is 600 points. The Phoenician defied the Avatar Perfection. He has nine movement, weapon skill eight, which is very good for him, ballistic skill six, strength, toughness, wounds, seven, eight initiative, seven attacks, 10 leadership, and a two plus save. So for his war gear, he has the Blades of the Phoenician. He has his Resplendent Wings, and he also has his Serpentine Daemon form. For special rules, he does have Legion, Legionis Hereticus, Emperor's Children, not Legionis Astartes. He has Master of the Legion, Scion of Corruption, Move Through Cover, Traitor, and then he's got a specific Warlord trait, which is Avatar Perfection. It's important to note, of course, that because he is still a Primarch and he has to be the Warlord if included, this is going to be the Warlord trait that you take with him, so it's considered automatically connected. There's not an option here. So the Avatar Perfection special rule is fluffy, but, well, we should talk about it. During the controller player's charge subphase, Fulgrim Transfigured and any unit he is a part of must attempt to charge if there are any enemy units that contain any models with an unmodified weapon skill characteristic of six or more, and at least one of those enemy units must be declared as a target of that charge. So, if you've got a Praetor-level opponent close enough to um, in in-charge range of Fulgrim, he has to charge that unit. That makes sense. He's seeking out the biggest challenges on the board. I think that's a nice fluffy limitation on him. You still, however, cannot uh, charge something other than what you shoot at. In subsequent fight subphases, the controlling player must issue a challenge and must nominate Fulgrim to be the challenger. If the challenge is accepted by an enemy model with a weapon skill characteristic of six or more that does not have the Primarch or Demon Primarch unit type, while that challenge is ongoing, attacks made for Fulgrim Transfigured hit on 2+, plus regard of the weapon skill of that character. In addition, you get an extra reaction for Fulgrim Transfigured in whatever unit he has joined. The first one that he uses in a phase is considered... Not a phase, I'm sorry, in a turn is considered free. So, he's very much appropriately, I think, very selfish in the way his rules work. He is required to charge, which I think is thematically appropriate, especially if he can charge a Primarch. He hits on a 2+, plus if he's not fighting another Daemon Primarch or another Primarch, which is, again, like, it's good. He's going to clean up really well on that. The biggest thing is, because of the way challenges work this edition, he is going to be relatively easy to control, at least for one turn. He's going to kill... Uh, darn near anything that he goes up against unless he's fighting another Primarch. But that first turn, he is going to be locked into that combat. So 100%, one of the things that's interesting here is that despite his size and the absurdity of him and his beautiful model, he can still join units. So it's going to be kind of important for you to put him with a unit. Uh, one of the things that is interesting in these rules as I've seen them, and I, I honestly didn't see this or and i haven't really utilized it but the way the rules work for challenges if two combatants are locked in a challenge and uh there are the rest of the squad is wiped then the rest of that squad can then pour into their wounds can pour into the challenge 
which that was always the case. But what's interesting, though, is that you can, and I maybe I was mistaken about this last edition, but if there is a unit of one, like if Fulgrim is all on his lonesome and he charges a Praetor in a command squad, then the Praetor or whomever can accept that challenge. Fulgrim can only kill whoever's in that challenge. And then uh, the rest of the squad is just free to swing on Fulgrim and with no repercussions. If you have a unit like with Chosen Warriors, for example, you can sacrifice one guy, an assault round, to Fulgrim, and just the rest of you can swing peacefully into him and try to take out chunks. Because Fulgrim has a requirement to be the challenger, there's not even a way to like shenaniganize your way out of this by putting him with a command squad, Fulgrim, I guess with a command squad that could then, you know, like someone else can take the challenge and then he can do his thing. That's not possible. So you're going to have to think about how you want to place him. There's definitely ways to get around this. And as we'll see later, you're probably going to feel incentivized to bring other beat stick special characters anyway. So if you place them with Fulgrim in this regard, it's not going to be that big of a deal, but it is a pretty specific limitation. Now, however, let's talk about it because he, I mean, it's, Fulgrim is still real tough. He still has some pretty, pretty special moves. So we should talk about those things for his war gear. Let's talk about his weapons first. He does have the blades of the Phoenician and he has two attack modes with these weapons. The first is the decapitating slashes and the second is sundering blows. Decapitating slashes are strength user AP2 melee murderous strike four plus. So AP2 is what you would expect. Murderous Strike on a 4 is pretty good for killing bigger and scarier things like Dreadnoughts or whatever else. Um, because those Murderous Strikes are going to cause D3 wounds against whatever you're going after. So that's this is a good thing for him. He's got a lot of attacks. Using the Decapitating Strikes will help in that way. His next profile is the Sundering Blows. And this is Strength plus 3, AP1, Melee, Brutal 2... Raffle Blows 3+, plus and Unwieldy. So Raffle Blows says that a model making attacks with a weapon with this special rule makes an amount of attacks equal to the number shown in brackets regardless of their attacks characteristics and any bonuses gained for charging. So first off, the Sundering Blows seems like a severe downgrade, but let's, let's take a look at the math before we really decide. So Decapitating Strikes is Strength User, um, AP2, and then the Murderous Strike. You are going to be swinging with seven attacks eight if you charge it, hitting on a two plus presumably unless you're fighting again another primark we're going to take um a look at this and say if we hit eight times if we swing eight times we can probably expect a little bit over six and a half hits out of those six and a half hits we can expect roughly five and a half wounds and then we need those five wounds to be saved. If we're fighting against something that's really worth our time, it's going to have an invulnerable save. Like, I'm presuming Cataphracti Terminators or the like. And so then you're looking at no more than maybe three uh, wounds delivered to those models. Now, with a strength of seven, you're not quite strong enough to double out Marines. You're not getting a bonus in any case, so you're really banking on those murderous strikes. So you're maybe going to kill two Terminators with this model, which is um, a disappointing output when you really think about this being a 600-point model. 
Interestingly enough, then, even though Wrathful Blows is greatly limiting with the number of attacks, because of Brutal 2 and the plus 3 strength, it sort of is going to even out, and you're going to have roughly similar output when you're trying to kill something, like I said, like a command squad, um, some, some hard target, like you might be going against. Because as noted, you're going to be required to charge something with weapon skill 6. Now, specifically, one thing that's sort of interesting is that he is going to be pretty okay against most of the Primarchs. Um, he does have a high number of attacks. He does have a very high weapon skill of 8 um, and a nice high initiative, so that, especially if you're going to be using the Decapitating Slashes, provided you don't go up against one of the Primarchs that is a 3-plus invulnerable save, that profile seems like it should do fine for you. Sundering Blows might be a little bit more painful. So then what else does this guy do? What else? Where else are we pulling these 600 points from, if not from his amazing offensive firepower? Um, well, so he's got some other special rules. First of all, Serpentine Daemon Form. He does have a 2-plus armor save and a 4-plus invul. In addition, when he has 4 or fewer wounds, he gets a plus 1 to dice rolls for his It Will Not Die special rule. So he's healing those back on a 4-plus, which is great, because I almost never manage to recover a wound on a Primarch when I play them. Um, in addition, if he ever, at the start of his turn, has two or fewer wounds and is not locked in combat, the player can choose to remove him from play as a casualty. If he does leave in this way, the opposing player gets no objectives or secondary objectives that would otherwise have been scored by removing him. So this is sort of interesting because if you don't manage to kill him outright, then you, and you know he's going not to make it another turn, you can just pull him off the board and prevent your opponent from getting anything out of him, you know? Very Fulgrim as well, with his, like, I'm bored, I'm going to leave. Um, very cool and in character, and honestly a pretty powerful ability, especially in a game that's going to be tight for objectives one way or another. You're not going to be able to kill the Warlord, you're not going to get Price of Failure, you know, whatever equivalent, if there's anything attached to killing uh, Primarchs or whatever. His wings do grant him a movement of 14, and they have all the benefits and drawbacks of, like, a jump pack and whatever else, which is fine. The important rule for us to talk about here is going to be his Scion of Corruption special rule, and this is where things are going to get a little bit wonky for this model. Scion of Corruption says that all units with the Legionus Astartes Emperor's Children special rule in an army that includes Fulgrim Transfigured have to replace it with Legionus Hereticus Emperor's Children special rule. In addition, you cannot include Fulgrim Transfigured in the same army as Fulgrim. That just makes sense. Now, the biggest thing is the change here. So you are not Legionus Astartes anymore, you're Legionus Hereticus. Well, what does that mean? Well, when this first came out, um, we were we knew we were going to be seeing a more corrupted version of the Emperor's Children. I was really excited for a expansive set of rules that was really going to kit out and explain this concept. We did not get that. Um, the Legionis Hereticus special rule has a bunch of tags and restrictions on it, which we'll go over here now. As you might expect in their effort to keep it clean, the biggest thing is that a detachment with Legionis Hereticus can only be Legionis Hereticus. So if you're taking these, you cannot mix, for example, um, corrupted units or crazy nonsense units uh, alongside regular Legionis Astartes units. For the Legionis Hereticus rule, also, it's important to note that unless otherwise specified, and I'm reading directly from the, P the rulebook here, um, 
A unit with this special rule loses any benefits, options, or war gear available to their specific variant of the Legion Estestardis X special rule, and instead gains the benefits granted by their specific variant of the Hereticus rule instead. What's really wild about this is that it is going to fundamentally change the way the army plays in an extremely drastic sort of way. You no longer have the plus one initiative when charging, you no longer have your advanced reaction. Um, admittedly, a brush with chaos and total corruption by Slanesh. It should have a very dramatic effect on the way the army works, looks, and feels, but still, it's it's uh, it's going to be a big change, as we're about to see now. What do you get instead? Well, you get some weird stuff. So here is the, uh, the special rule that we get instead is the Lords of Profligacy. And it says that after a shooting attack has been resolved against a unit composed entirely of models of this special rule, if the unit is not falling back, its controlling player can choose for it to become stupefied. If a unit becomes stupefied while pinned or affected by the blind or concussive special rules, it ignores the effects of these rules while stupefied. So stupefied is a kind of uh, damage uh, mitigation rule with some extra little steps to it. So when stupefied, you can only fire snapshots and cannot make any reactions whatsoever, which is... In this game, that's huge. If a unit that is stupefied declares a charge, then it's always considered to be disordered, which is also huge. Stupefied units do increase their strength characteristic 1, and when a model with stupefied uh, ha has an unsaved wound, they can roll to shrug it off on a 6+. Add 1 to your stupefied rolls for this sake if the unit is fearless, um, and, of course, it is classified as a damage mitigation roll, so you can only make one such roll per type of wound. Um, at the end of the controlling player's following turn, the unit is no longer stupefied. While it is stupefied, a unit cannot does not take any further morale checks in the movement phase or shooting. It can't be pinned. If it's forced to move, for example, if it has to fall back, it becomes no longer stupefied. If assaulted while stupefied, it gets to fight as normal. However... Enemy units don't receive an initiative penalty for charging them through difficult terrain or if the unit is in difficult terrain because you're so out of it that you're not going to take advantage of the tactical situation. If the unit becomes stupefied while making a charge, then the charge continues as normal but is automatically counted as disordered. So if you get if you use the stupefied rule as being as you're charging and then you're overwatched and you use it to take a, you know, to try to shrug those off, then you automatically become disordered. Units that are locked in combat can be stupefied, but take morale checks in the assault phase as normal, and if forced to fall back, again, become no longer stupefied. Okay, so for a 6-plus invulnerable save, and the ability to shrug off blind or concussive, and a plus 1 to your strength, you snapshoot, you become disordered constantly when charging, and you lose the ability to make reactions. A plus 1 strength is... Uh, is good is it better than all of those other things um i really don't know I, my inclination is to say no i do not know anyone personally who has played with fulgrim transfigured using these rules as written and with the legionis hereticus so i can't say for certain how this has affected their gameplay but uh i will say that it seems it seems like a lot to give up here and for not necessarily a ton of benefit. Now, 
if you can get more fearless and then it becomes a five plus stupefied save, um, that does seem better. But fearless is not something that is super easy to come about. And again, it's still just as good as a save that can be. I mean, it's a special rule that you would get just for having an apothecary with you. So this is a huge, this is a huge drawback. On top of that, there are some other exceptions that have to be made. Legionus Hereticus special rules the, for the Emperor's children. You do lose access to certain war gear and upgrades, and also you lose access to certain units. You cannot take a Phoenix Warden Council. You cannot take that uh, upgrade that is a, a special perk of being an Emperor's Children player. In addition, uh, Phoenix Terminator squads with this special rule for Legionus Hereticus you lose living icons and the phoenix retinue and instead get fallen from grace. So fallen from grace is a special rule that says plus one to the score used to calculate winner of combat during the assault phase. If you're within another friendly unit that has the Legionus Hereticus Emperor's children. And if you're within six of Fulgrim transfigured, instead it's a plus two for combat resolution. As far as the Phoenix Terminators are concerned, this actually is not that bad of a change because the Living Icons rule grants mostly the same thing. It's a plus one to the score if you're within another friendly unit. So that is basically the same. The You do lose the Phoenix Retinue, and the biggest thing about that is that you can't take a, you can't take a banner in this squad then. It, they cannot count specifically as a Retinue instead of an Elite's Choice, so you're getting a little bit of wonkiness on the force organization. But, you know, um, another part of the living icon rule says that it doesn't stack with Sire of the Emperor's Children, which is regular Fulgrim's rule that gives you, again, that plus one to combat. So you're actually, especially if you take Fulgrim, you're getting a better bonus to combat resolution here, which is cool. Uh, but, you know, you are missing out on that banner. Now the new advanced reaction is called Twisted Desire. And this is made during an opposing sh uh, player's shooting phase when they declare a shooting attack. Basically, what you do is your, your unit immediately becomes stupefied and adds two to those stupefied rolls against wounds inflicted as part of the shooting attack. So if essentially, you're getting a four-plus feel no pain once per game. That's not terrible. It does come with the stupefied tag, which does limit you in a lot of other ways. But it is pretty good for protecting a unit i guess that you really want to keep alive so there are other things then that come to this there are additional uh war gear concepts or, or i should say there are war gear options available and there are also uh rights of war that you can get access to these rights of war are known as corrupted rights of war any detachment that has legionis hereticus faction regardless of the specific variant of that faction uh, and specifically, it says, for example, Legionus Hereticus Emperor's Children or um, Legionus Hereticus Sons of Horus. So, I mean, we kind of figured more of this was coming, but it's kind of cool to see it regardless. And fulfills at least one of the following conditions may use a corrupted right of war. The two bullet points that follow are the detachment includes at least one model with both Legionus Hereticus and the Master of Legion special rule, which makes sense. Or the detachment can upgrade at least one model from the detachment to have Master of Allegiant, as specifically noted in the Corrupted Right of War that allows this. So this is like, I mean, basically this is the same thing for regular Rights of War. Your uh, Master of Armor, for example, in Armor Spearhead, it allows you to take 
something that sh- doesn't normally have Master of the Legion and Bay unlock and give you access to the Rite of War. The Emperor's children then get two corrupted Rites of War, the Brotherhood of the Phoenix and the Children of the Maraviglia. So the first one is the Brotherhood of the Phoenix, and there are some very interesting rules for this. I think of the two of them, I like this one better, but it's got big problems associated with it. Well, they both do. All right, Brotherhood of the Phoenix. A detachment with this corrupted right of war can take up to five HQ choices, regardless of force org chart in use. Each of these HQ choices must be from the following list. You can take Eidolon. You can take Lucius. You can take a Legion Centurion with the Champion Console Upgrade. You can take a Cataphracti Centurion with the Champion Upgrade. Or you can take a Tartaros Centurion with the Console Upgrade. In addition, a Champion in a Detachment using this Corrupted Rite of War gains the Sycophantic Retinue Special Rule, which says that while Fulgrim is on the battlefield, Fulgrim Transfigured of course, models of this Special Rule gain the Preferred Enemy Everything Special Rule. The limitations... Fulgrim must be included in a detachment using this Corrupted Rite of War, which makes sense. I don't know why you would be even reading this book if you weren't trying to put him on the board. So this special rule is, this this Rite of War is basically built around this idea of a bunch of special characters going out there and dueling, causing havoc, whatever. And that in itself, as a concept, is pretty cool as far as Emperor's Children's stuff goes. That does make sense to us. So... Uh, you can take any of these HQ choices of these five, but the five are essentially just champions and then two special characters. You cannot take any other HQs. You cannot take a chaplain. You cannot take a librarian. Um, you cannot take a forge alert. You are extremely limited on this concept. You may only take these, uh, combat units. It's extremely limiting. Preferred enemy everything is good, But again, it's going to be a very specific kind of list. Now, keep in mind as well that when you're talking about including these things, the benefit of this right of war is to get those champions on the board. So you're going to spend at least 100 points for each of those, 130-ish maybe for some of them, depending on what you're giving them. Preferred enemy is great. With 600 points for Fulgrim, and then, I don't know, you're going to take at least two or three of these champions, or Eidolon, or whomever, you're looking at a huge percentage of your list just locked up in HQs. Essentially, to keep them alive, you're going to want to spend most of the rest of your points trying to just build bubbles around them, and it's not going to leave you much for much else. This is going to be a very in-your-face, very smash sort of list and army. I guess you're going to have stupefied to try to help keep you viable a little bit, but like, wow, I mean, it's a very specific type of, uh, of right of war. It could be fun, and I do like the idea of using all these characters together, um, especially for something if you're going to do like late stage Terra. Um, that sounds cool. Assault on the Walls. If you have a buddy who plays Dorn, this could be a fun right of war to use to represent that fight on the walls of Terra in the Saturnine novel. Is it good? Uh... I'm, I'm leaning towards not great. It's a very specific concept. It doesn't aid you in a lot of other ways. But we'll, we'll, we'll look at it. We'll keep looking at it. We'll come back to this in a minute. The next right of war is the Children of the Maraviglia. And this one has maybe some more theatrical options to it, but it's still pretty specific. All models in a unit from an allied detachment gain the stubborn special rule while at least one model from that unit is within six inches 
of any model with Legionus Hereticus. And Fulgrim gains the stage is set special rule. Now the stage is set says that before the start of the first turn when placing units into reserve, if Fulgrim has not joined a unit and does not have a retinue squad, the controlling player may place Fulgrim into reserves and must declare to their opponent a turn number from turn two to four, indicating on which of their own turns they will bring Fulgrim into play from reserves. At the start of the declared turn, the controlling player must place Fulgrim wholly within six inches of a unit with Legionus Hereticus, Emperor's Children, and Special Rule, and not within one inch of enemy models. If this is not possible, Fulgrim cannot be set up this turn, and the controlling player must attempt to deploy at the start of the following turn. Until Fulgrim is placed on the battlefield in this manner, all models in a detachment he is a part of have Stubborn. So you get to just drop him onto the board. However, um, it does not necessarily say that after he is deployed, he can charge or anything else. So it, it is a little bit ambiguous to me if he is just going to stand there and he can't join a unit So because he must be alone for this to work. So, I mean, I guess essentially what you would do to with this is you could have him join a unit at the end of the turn so place him next to wherever he wants to be, whatever unit, and then at the end of the turn, have at the end of the movement phase, have him join that squad for protection, I suppose. He's still going to get lit up by interceptor fire, but it is something that you can do. Now, Fulgrim has to be included in a detachment with this right of war, as you would expect. The right of war can only be selected for a primary detachment, and an army whose primary detachment is using this right of war, must use an allied detachment that is selected from either Solar Ox or Militia, and it must include at least four units. The only thing that this right of war really gives you is the ability to plop Fulgrim wherever you want him at a certain predetermined point, uh, as far as you decide, and then the stubborn special rule. If you're going to use a lot of uh, human auxilia, auxilia, then this actually, I, I think, does work for you because it is going to keep them around they're less likely to flee but it's not terribly exciting other than that again specifically because fulgrim can't really like charge you're going to be giving your opponent a chance to do something in response to his entrance to the field um so you're you're not going to get that immediate impact on the board the way that you might otherwise so mm, it's a bit of a it's it's not it's not great it's not great the shenanigans of this um, right of war are interesting to me. Uh, better, I guess, than the very direct approach of the first example. But at, at the very least, the first right of war becomes a very specific, slightly more efficient, I suppose, close combat option. It's a sort of option you'd like to have if you could also have the plus one initiative from your old Legion trait, but I guess no longer. So uh, both of them are fine i don't think they're necessarily fantastic in either uh, i think i i guess now that i think about it if i was going to play with either of them i might actually even consider going with uh the maraviglia because just for the fun and novelty of doing it um, and just to have a little bit more agency over how the board works but that's just me lots of people just like to smash face and so the first option is the better for just that probably as far as war gear, there are still options. The Phoenix pattern power weapons uh, appear to be basically the same. Uh, the Phoenix rapier and power spear are the same concept. The rapier is strength user, AP3, melee, rending, and murderous strike on a six each. 
And the spear is the same as before also. Plus two strength, AP three. Melee, reach one. Murderous strike six. Breaching six plus and two-handed. So, I mean, that is the same. The biggest thing, the biggest change here is the special augmentations that can be made. You are going to lose all of the examples from the previous and gain three entirely new ones. Some of those are clear, some of these are clear upgrades, um, but, you know, one of them is a big loss. So, the one that I thought was really excellent from the first go-around was the Sonic Shriekers. And that just said that during a turn in which a unit with at least one model equipped is charged or charges themselves, units locked in combat with them suffer a minus one penalty to all hit rolls. Uh, anyone who was immune to fear was also immune to this, but a minus one to hit is pretty impressive. The other options were to ignore the leadership and ballistic skill imposed by night fighting, which I guess honestly could be pretty great on a heavy weapon squad or the like, and then also a sort of template weapon. For Legionis Hereticus, you get um, three new ones. You get Abhorrent and Sensoria, and models with this upgrade gain Precision Shots 5+, and Precision Strikes 5+, and a different kind of some uh, template weapon. This one is Assault 1, Flesh, Blaine, Flesh Bane, and Blind. Um, but the one that's most interesting to me is the Warp Scream. This one is that you gain Hammer of Wrath 1, and if you already have Hammer of Wrath as a standard, just add an additional plus one to that. In addition, Hammer of Wrath attacks made by a model with the Warp Scream have the Rending 5 Plus special rule. Now, Rending 5 Plus is no joke. That means that you are going to be causing some relatively free wounds to whatever it is that you're charging. Because Hammer of Wrath hits automatically, if you manage to get, let's say, five units with a jump pack in with this special rule then you're hitting 10 Hammer of Attack Wraths. Fishing for fives on there means that you can add some pretty impressive chip damage to, like, a Dreadnought before you even get into it, which is not bad. Or, you know, just take a couple of models off the board of your opponent's Death Star or whatever before they even get to swing. It's pretty good. Now, standard as before, you can take these upgrades on characters, or if you have a unit with a special rule that allows them to take, uh, you know, the, the, the whole squad to take it, then you can do so. So specifically, that's for Palatine Blades and the Phoenix Terminators. Now, the Palatine Blades do have a data sheet in Legends that allows them to take jump packs. So these guys, all of them with Hammer of Wrath, additional attacks that rend on a 5 is not bad at all. If you were going to take those units already for an additional 25 points, it is pricey, but it is a nice little bit of extra added offense if you're going to put it out there. The biggest thing here is I'm a little bit sad about these augments because, like I said before, the Sonic Shriekers were a great upgrade to consider putting on almost any unit. A minus one to hit is an amazing debuff. And so, like, just putting this on a sergeant, for example, is absolutely fantastic just any squad just sort of even something that you were just going to stand on an objective and try to bait out a charge there aren't any upgrades in my opinion in this list which are so great that you would just consider taking them on the sergeant the hammer of wrath is not going to add that much extra for your squad the precision shots five plus and precision strikes five plus um could but it's not going to have a sweeping effect on the overall survivability of the unit and the template weapon i mean it it, it'll be fine, but it's not going to break anything or change anything. It's 15 points for that upgrade. 
Overall, I see the warp scream, especially if you are going to be, like I said, using a fair number of uh, Palatine Blades in accordance with some of your champions in the Brotherhood of the Phoenix Rite of War. I can see that being a little bit of synergy. But other than that, I don't see a lot of obvious connections to be made here. And generally speaking, I think that I would have to say that I prefer the standard Emperor's Children rules. I think there's more options there, more availability, and less restrictions, which is really disappointing to me. Um, I said it earlier in this episode that this book in general, the Exemplary Exemplary Battles book, was just overall just kind of a disappointment for me. And I think this is a good example why. This is the... This is the unique rules that came out from this book, and they are quite simply uh, just sort of mid. Um, they're okay. They are not going to uh, dramatically... While they are going to dramatically change the way your army plays, which is good, we when typically when we see ad- ad- adaptations or something like this, we want it to be specific enough that it feels like a change that is warranted because it's different enough. Um, the, the change is so direct and, and specific and uh, such a left turn from the initial design that they honestly just, I don't know. I don't see them as being all that much fun to play. Fulgrim at 600 points is a tax on this entire thing. You have to include him to get these rights of war. Um, you are limited in other options that you can have. The war gear changes are side grades sometimes, and in some situations, downgrades. And also, uh, your legion trait just, um, I think, it provides some benefits, but also huge drawbacks. And I guess I'm just not sure how to read those things. Perhaps there are Emperor's Children players out there who have uh, played this, put this together, and can tell me... Um, how they've been successful with it, but I'm not seeing it currently as such. I still think it'd be fun to do, but if I were an Emperor's Children player, I think I would be disappointed uh, by this. Not only for the fact that the rules are just sort of um, confusing in how they want you to interpret and deploy them, but also because you are going to spend quite a pretty penny to put this army together because you're going to have to buy the new Fulgrim, who is a very expensive model, and then you're going to have to buy probably all sorts of new models to represent your Legionis um, Hereticus, and it's going to be something entirely different. And if I were considering this, if I were taking a look at this, I don't know that I would spend all that money on an army that didn't play in a way that was satisfactory to me. So I'm unfortunately kind of down on this. Now, next year... In 2024, if the pattern holds, we will get another campaign book, and then I guess maybe another Exemplary Battles book. It hasn't really been, I've not really heard for sure. Let's hope that with the next Exemplary Battles book, they learn from their mistakes and don't just do this same sort of half-finished job. I still hold out hope that when we eventually get to the Corrupted Death Guard, they can do something to make it feel like they should. What's silly to me is that for that one I feel like I know exactly how the rules should look and so anything less than basically Marines getting a native 5 plus feel no pain what else should they get probably everyone's heavy so they can't run something like that outside of those things I think I think whatever comes might be a disappointment as well so let's hope that whenever that happens we get something that feels 
like it plays right, feels like it makes sense, and actually makes the army worth considering. Because as of right now, the corrupted Emperor's children, to me, I do not see, I do not see the draw. Well, that about does it for this time. I really want to thank you for listening um, and continuing to support the channel. I hope you have an excellent new year. If you've gotten this far and you haven't already, please consider liking and subscribing. Right now, we do still have that tip bucket active, so you could drop a tip to support the channel. But as stated earlier, come back next year and the Patreon will be up and running. So thanks very much. Hope you're doing well. Take care.